to recap, are blackouts going to happen? We don't know. It seems unlikely. I mean, the, the certainly the regulators say this probably isn't going to happen, but it is true that we're not going in in the in the most robust of, uh, of situations. In the great Pixar movie, Monsters, Inc., a parallel universe inhabited by monsters has managed to harness the power of sound for screams of terrified children, to be precise. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we haven't been able to replicate this in our universe. But as global warming increasingly starts to raise ugly head, the need for clean energy has never been more pressing. But unlike the screams of children, energy does not come cheap especially not these days. The price of energy has skyrocketed in the past weeks, a result of a post-COVID recovery, increasing demand across the world, combined with many other factors. A true political dynamite of a rising price of energy could well give political leaders cold sweats as winter is coming and energy reserves drop. Will Europeans face a blackout this winter? Who should we throw the blame at for this surge? Russia? the EU, the emissions trading system, who knows. To talk about this issue, this issue we are very glad to have Eitor Hernandez Morales from Plisco EU and Thomas Perlin-Carlin, director of the Institute Jacques Delors Energy Center. If you like the show, you can get more than common decency at Mace Magazine. Mace Magazine is a fantastic magazine on British and European politics and we've been publishing every week for them some great articles where we build the key takeaways of our episodes. If you like the show and find yourself coming back most weeks to listen, please consider supporting the show through Patreon. We've been doing this on our spare time, and while it's definitely worth the time for sure, we've been paying all our physical and digital equipment out of our pockets, and would love to be able to have extra resources to put together special events or improve our equipment and many other cool projects we have in mind. To our patrons, thanks a lot. We can't thank you enough for your help. For those of you on the fence, we can't promise you any special content yet. But if enough of you join our patron, we will consider adding paid tiers with special content for our patrons and special sessions with our followers. If you can't spare the money, no worries. But as always, you can rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts. And I can't stress this enough, these reviews really really help us a lot to grow on the competitive podcast landscape and lastly continue sending us your comments and questions at undecencypod on twitter or undecencypod at gmail.com by email thanks a lot and on to the show so we're so glad to have with us two fantastic um, experts on this conversation we've got Ata hernandez who's a policy reporter for Politico EU. Previously, Ata covered Portuguese politics and social issues as the Lisbon-based correspondent for Spain's El Mundo and the Cadena Net radio network. He also collaborated with Spain's El Español, um, Ahora Semanal, France Courrier International, Canada's CTV News. He also served on El Mundo's international and breaking news desk where he covered European affairs. On the other side of the line, we have Thomas Pedra Carlin, who's the director of Jacques Delors Institute Center on Energy and is a senior energy um, um, and it's a senior energy fellow on energy policy. 
His work looks at the intersection of energy policy with innovation in climate change in the context of the European Green Deal. He teaches at the College of Europe at Sciences Po and at the Sorbonne. He previously worked for France's civil service and at the College of Europe. Um, thank you for the both of us for being with us. We're very glad to have, to have you with us for this conversation on the EU's energy crisis. Um, let's begin. What is happening in the EU energy market currently? We are seeing skyrocketing electricity prices across the continent. Um, I think it's important we brush for our listeners a overview of the crisis and the socioeconomic impact across the EU. Let's start with a reporter first, Ata. Yeah, so uh, yeah, first of all, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Um, the, 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 the situation is, is kind of a, a slow burn in that it's, it's been building up over the course of, of the past many months and suddenly was felt in some countries um, earlier on. So uh, we've been seeing uh, pretty high electricity prices in, in Spain all the way back uh, in, in May. We already started to see that rise and that's been building up over the summer steadily to the point where uh, Spain was one of the first countries to kind of bring it to the attention of Brussels and, and complain about it in the, uh, in the summer, I believe in July. The, um, the Spanish Deputy Prime Minister and Ecological Transition Minister, Teresa Rivera, sent over a letter to Franz Timmermans kind of warning him and saying, hey, uh, this situation is going on, especially if you guys want to move forward with uh, Fit for 55 and everything else, you really do have to make sure that uh, legislation is uh, crafted in such a way that it's not going to put a disproportionate burden on, on the citizenry. So um, when we actually get into, into the nitty gritty and we get into the issues that have really blown up uh, since the fall, when we've seen the, uh, the spiking electricity prices all over uh, the block, um, we get into a situation that very much has to do with the structure of, of uh, just the way that energy is used in Europe, but also a lot of global dynamics. So um, the key uh, underlying issue that we have uh, with this phenomenon is, is the issue of spiking uh, global gas prices. And this is an issue that's been building up, uh, honestly, even, even as, the, as the pandemic was, was starting. I remember at that point, one of the, one of the first stories that I, that I wrote for Politico when I joined in, in February of 2020 was on uh, just how volatile gas markets were becoming and, and how crazy the prices were becoming. Um, where we see this really affect the, the, the European situation is that uh, Europe operates uh, with a wholesale electricity market structure, which is a, a marginal market structure. So when we talk about a marginal market structure, uh, it's, it's a bit complex, but the easiest way that you can imagine it is, uh, let's say that you go to a butcher and, uh, and you buy you know, some, just, uh, some very standard ham and a chicken and then you also happen to buy a small bit of uh, filet mignon. Uh, and it's as if the butcher charges you for everything with the filet mignon price rather than at the, at the basic price for ham or for chicken. That's more or less what's going on. Uh, with the way that, this, the, with the, with the, that the market works, if you look at a, at a country like Spain, for example, you'll have 85% of power produced by renewables, which are very, very, very cheap. But with the remaining part, a substantial part of that 15% is, uh, is, is accounted for with natural gas. And so the totality of the price that, that, that is paid for, for the electricity is based on the price of natural gas. Since natural gas is very expensive, therefore the overall price is, is very expensive. Um, and, that's, and that's kind of the situation that we're seeing across the block. The final um, uh, factor that I would say is, is really relevant to keep in mind is just that this has been a year with higher than average demand. So we had a, uh, a very cold beginning to the year. 
then we had a very hot summer. And so the demand for, for power has been a bit higher than previous years and certainly higher than the previous year, the lockdown year. Uh, so when we, when we went into the fall, for example, the gas reserves in Europe were lower than expected. We're not talking about something super dramatic, but it is lower than, than in previous years. And that's certainly something to, to keep in mind as we, as we talk about this issue. And um, Thomas, from the kind of more institutional um, perspective, what do you make of, this, uh, of those comments by ATOL? Yep. So, so the main reason why this uh, crisis of uh, uh, the prices of fossil gas uh, became a, a wide energy crisis and impacting electricity is because we still heavily rely on fossil gas uh, in Europe. Uh, so currently, we have around a quarter uh, of our energy demand in Europe that is covered by by fossil gas. Uh, it's the second most important energy source in Europe, uh, right after oil. Um, so oil accounts for around a third. Uh, and then we have around 20% for renewables and uh, 20% for nuclear and coal combined. So 10% each, uh, more or less. Um, so fossil gas still plays a, a very important role. And that's one of the reasons why uh, this crisis uh, of fossil gas became uh, an energy crisis, especially in the electricity, electricity sector, uh, as a result of the um, uh, uh, merit order, the, the manager the marginal price uh, pricing system that uh, uh, that ATOL just uh, just explained. Um, so what it means for us Europeans, so uh, currently they've been based on reactions for the short term, but also for the medium term. Uh, and in essence, having the, the right diagnosis is uh, politically vital. Uh, since this crisis is first and foremost provoked uh, by a spike in the price of fossil gas, the, the right structural way out of such crisis in the future is the way out of fossil fuels and specifically out of fossil gas. Uh, and this is something that has not been at the center uh, of EU policy uh, uh, for now, uh, but that should be, uh, uh, should be, I mean, that is increasingly, increasingly important. And that leads us to conversations on the sectors where uh, fossil gas is currently largely used. Uh, there are three main sectors uh, today uh, where fossil gas is particularly used. Uh, there is the one of electricity generation, uh, who we could, where we could consume if we chose to, uh, we could consume significantly less fossil gas, but we will still need it um, from time to time during the year, especially to ensure the, the proper balance between supply and demand in the electricity sector, at least for the next two decades. Um, then there is the heating sector, uh, where we could really, really get rid of fossil gas very quickly if we chose to, uh, because we have a, a lot of technologies that can replace that from energy efficiency, uh, housing, to solar heating, to geothermal, to biomass, um, uh, you name it. Uh, we, we have many alternatives to that. And then there is the use of fossil gas in the industry, um, and especially in the particular sector where uh, fossil gas is used as a feedstock. Uh, so currently, we, we know, you know, hydrogen is very hype. Uh, uh, hydrogen is not new. Hydrogen is, a, um, is an ingredient uh, that is used a lot, especially when it comes to producing fertilizers. And currently, to produce this hydrogen, uh, uh, currently, uh, we use fossil gas. Uh, so you take a molecule of methane, so that's CH4, and you break it down. And then in the end, you have uh, the, the carbon uh, of the CH4 that get attached to oxygen, and that becomes CO2. So um, one, uh, one of the global uh, most harmful uh, greenhouse gas uh, in, in the world. Uh, and the H4 is split into two, and you've got two molecules um, uh, of hydrogen. Uh, and so that's a sector where we could um, develop quite quickly a renewable hydrogen if you wanted to. So by quite quickly, I mean, you know, five to 10 years. 
uh, especially near uh, the sites where we know that uh, fertilizer production is happening in uh, uh, in Europe, and, and that's you know interesting because there's a lot of hype on hydrogen. And my first question, you know, when anyone is saying that we need to develop a hydrogen economy, is you know what's your plan uh, to first uh, uh, ensure that we use renewable hydrogen instead of uh, fossil hydrogen, uh, and that's a question that is particularly. Um, uh, important, uh, uh, important today. Uh, are you telling your thoughts? Yeah. So, so I I, I completely agree uh, with with uh, with what's being pointed out. Uh, that said, I do think it's important to 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 just flag because this is this is uh, it very much goes to to the the standard line from the from the commission has been like we need to build up renewables, we need to build up renewables. That's absolutely true. But the 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 the, the one thing that I do think is worth flagging is just. As long as uh, we don't have on um, 100% green uh, energy mix, uh, the way that the current market structure uh, model works, any little bit will will therefore condition the price. Any little bit of, of, of fossil uh, fuels in the mix will condition the price. And so it's 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 important to be realistic about this simply because right now in the in the EU, you know, not even our, our greenest member countries uh, have have gotten to the point where they are 100% green. Um, in terms of, of long-term development, that's certainly the aspiration and certainly what we should be working for. But I do think there has to be honesty with the consumer, especially on the part of, of the politicians in, in explaining this, this goal is far off and we're going to be dealing with these crazy prices for the foreseeable future unless, unless the, the, the market model is changed and, and there's no real indication that that's going to happen anytime soon. So you know, the, the, the experts that I've spoken to say at least a decade before we have the, the energy storage capacity to really make uh, any possibility of having clean energy storage at the level that we need to be able to, 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 to forego having that, that um, essentially that baseline, uh, that baseload fuel, uh, fuel available. Um, so just, 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 just to, just to flag that, because it, it is true that every time this issue has come up, the commission has come out and, and said that, uh, and that's certainly the goal. But realistically speaking, I think it's it's necessary to be candid with consumers and just say like, yeah, that's the long term goal. But at an immediate point, you know, no amount of of uh, wind turbines or solar panels that you put up in the next two years are going to solve this problem. This is a problem that we're going to be dealing with for years to come. Um, yeah, so 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 that's uh, that's indeed true. Uh, yet the more you deploy renewables, um, the less. Um, so. Let, let, yeah, the, the, the less often yeah, that, that will happen. Yeah, you're absolutely. Uh, so for, yeah. yeah, so so for instance, yeah, um, uh, and by the way, that's for renewables, but that's also valid, uh, technically speaking, for nuclear because that's also another uh, decarbonized source of energy. Um, and and actually, one of the things that you've seen happening in 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 some countries, so that's particularly the case in France, uh, where the electricity is heavily decarbonized because of a past choice for nuclear. Uh, is that you can use to some extent nuclear power plants to do what we call technically speaking load following. Uh, and that significantly reduce your need for uh, for for fossil gas, uh, and so that's also an option to for both the countries themselves who choose to continue with nuclear or to develop nuclear in the case of some Central Eastern European countries, uh, but that's also a possibility at the at the wider uh, level uh, at the at the EU level to use national nuclear power plants to do this kind of load following, but this requires to install much more uh, renewables. So essentially, you would have renewables that would serve as a as a base load, and then the nuclear power plants that currently are being used as a base load, so to generate the maximum electricity always, can be can do some load following, uh, and therefore here you have a good complementarity between the two that really really shelves uh, the consumption of gas, and therefore make sure that you know we have around eight thousand hours every year. Um, uh, of those eight thousand, uh, how many hours 
uh, do we have when the price of electricity is made by the natural gas power plant? And is it like 4,000 or 2,000? Or can we get it down to 1,000 and even less than that? And that will depend uh, on the amount of electricity we can generate uh, uh, with uh, decarbonized sources, so uh, each one of the renewables plus nuclear. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, so I, I flagged this mainly because in so this has been kind of uh, or it, it had been missing from the conversation in 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 countries like Spain, and it ended up creating this curious backlash where uh, there were a lot of consumers complaining about the fact that they had you know been witness to this renewable boom over the past few years, and yet they found themselves paying higher prices than they earnestly did not understand. And it was one of those things where now I think the Spanish government's doing a much better job of explaining why exactly this is happening and explaining that it, it really is something that has to do a lot with, with, the, with the market structure. But um, certainly it was, uh, it, it, it really did put clean energy in this, in this suspect light for a while and, and, and to, the, to the detriment of the, of the green transition. So it, it is something that I think is, is really important to, to, to be clear on and, and to kind of insist to people this is very much much an investment in your future, but it is not a, a you know, th- this isn't a magic wand solution. It's not going to solve things immediately. Uh, and, I, and I think that's created a lot of pressure in Europe because a lot of consumer, consumers and therefore governments are asking for immediate relief, immediate solutions to this. And, uh, and, and when, the, when the response is consistently, well, build up more renewables, build up more renewables, Absolutely, that's a long-term solution, but it is it, at the moment it's it's not anything that's going to lower prices, you know, from one month to the yeah. next. And and precisely the the question being asked, if you know, if, if uh, in one of your stories, uh, I thought you report of, for instance, the Austrian government and their de- defense minister, who was um, you know openly uh, entertained the possibility that there will be blackouts in the winter. So now that we've sort of taken a um, taken a look at, at the institutional setting of the EU energy market, and, and we kind of describe what the, the energy crunch is looking like, how do you assess the, the, the prospects of there being widespread energy blackouts this coming winter, as, as is increasingly being reported by global media, uh, starting with, uh, I thought, and then turning to Thomas? Yeah, so as, as, you, as you mentioned, this, the, this conversation kind of got uh, kicked off last month by Austrian Defense Minister Claudia Tanner who uh, rolled out this, this, uh, this nationwide poster campaign in Austria, uh, kind of telling citizens they needed to start stockpiling food and, and be ready for this, uh, this blackout that she said uh, it, it wasn't a matter of whether it would come, but when it will come, um, kind of spiking off a, a panic. And, uh, and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a testament to the, uh, the Germanic footprint on the Balearic Islands in Spain that, uh, that immediately the Austrian community in, in, in Mallorca also started buying up camping supplies uh, and, and, and kicking off uh, then uh, uh, kind of this, uh, this panic buying that then took off from there to, to Catalonia and then gradually spread through the rest of Spain. Um, so are there going to be blackouts or not? The, look, the honest answer is we don't know because it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, so... It, 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 it really does depend on a lot of factors and it depends on, on different parts of Europe. Um, so ironically enough, despite the fact that they've been paying very high prices for power during this time, and despite the fact that um, they've had to face the shutdown of one of their main sources of, of natural gas, the Iberian Peninsula, for example, is, is very well positioned because they have these massive um, reservoirs of natural gas set up where um, the ecological transition minister actually boasted that they could survive something like you know 10 mega storms and they would still be fine they have uh, they have an if even if if no natural gas went into spain right now they would have reserves for 40 days um stored up 
and and nobody really expects uh, the 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 arrival of fuel to be cut off for forty days. Now, in terms of the rest of Europe, this is this is one of those situations that kind of highlights the need for greater um, interconnection between uh, between member countries. In Spain's case, it's actually saved by the fact that it's relatively disconnected from Europe. It's 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 kind of an energy island in in the periphery. But with uh, with the rest of the continent, you do have a situation where we're going into this winter with with a lower than average supply of natural gas. That is certainly true. But the analysts that we've spoken to have consistently told us that there should be enough to make it through the winter. We will end the winter season with a relatively low um, uh, amount of gas storage. The, the estimate right now is 15% of gas storage. But that should make us through. Now, that said, if we have an insane winter where we have a cold snap every week, then we, we could actually run into some trouble. But um, we spoke with, with, uh, with NTOE uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and this is, the, this is the, the gas network operator, and they insisted to us, look, you know, blackouts are extremely rare events in Europe. It's very unlikely that this will happen. And the last major grid out, outage that happened in, on the, on, in the, within the block happened almost uh, two decades ago. So uh, there's, there's not a strong belief that, uh, that this will happen. But that said, we are waiting for a report which should be out either this week or the next where they'll give their, their projections for the winter. Uh, so to recap, are blackouts going to happen? We don't know. It seems unlikely. I mean, the, the, certainly the regulators say this, this probably isn't going to happen, but it is true that we're not going in in the, in the most robust of, uh, of situations. And Thomas, your, your, your own work at the Jacques Delors Institute involves talking to energy policymakers across the EU. What are, what are, your, what are you hearing and what are your, your, what's your own assessment of whether or not we'll have outages at, at any point in the coming winter? Um, well, if I had to give a short answer, I mean, uh, it will depend on 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 the weather forecast, really, <laughs> uh, and and that's kind of the sad thing. I mean, uh, you know, we humans we we have a tendency for hubris, the idea that we can control everything, and 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 here we're stuck in a situation where if the winter is mild, we're going to be okay, uh, and if it's uh, an extremely cold winter, if we have one or two uh, big cold waves, then we're going to be really in trouble, uh, and the question will be, you know, um, uh, you know, to to whom will we cut? Uh, gas and or um, uh, electricity. Um, and so here also there's a political choice. Uh, I mean, uh, if by blackouts you mean like a, a vast blackout like the one that happened in Texas in, in February, obviously this is not going to happen uh, because the EU has done some uh, genuine regulation on the electricity and the gas market, which Texas uh, did not do. Uh, and Europe is um, pretty well integrated. Uh, compared to Texas with the rest of the US, uh, because for instance, the Texas electricity grid is uh, totally detached, uh, physically detached from, from the rest of the USA. Uh, Why this is, I mean, apart from a few islands, uh, this is not, not the case. You have a physical interconnection going uh, uh, from uh, Helsinki to, 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 to Lisboa, for, for instance. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so we, I mean, we don't know, we don't know there. Um, um, maybe you know. Maybe it's because I, used, uh, I spend too much time in the French military. But I, I think it's always good to to prepare from you know the worst case scenarios, just to be prepared. And just the fact of being prepared is likely to reduce the impact and also the likeliness of occurrence of that particular scenario. Uh, so that's why I think it was positive uh, what the Austrian government said. Uh, and I was not surprised that it came from the defense ministry, <laughs> to be uh, to be uh, to, to be honest. I I, I I would wish if there were uh, this kind of uh, you know 
kind of um, a bit more, uh, yeah, uh, real talk by other politicians um, in, uh, in Europe, and it's certainly not happening in my in my home country, so in uh, uh, in France. Um, one thing that I, I must really, really stress um, is that um, one thing that is going to be particularly helpful uh, for many Europeans is that we have uh, some kind of coordination of uh, gas storage in Europe uh, and gas transfer. Uh, so, meaning, for instance, that the, the 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 important Spanish reserves that uh, uh, that Ato was mentioning uh, are not only made for Spain; uh, they're made partially, at least, for uh, the entire continent. Uh, and so, uh, we have the physical capacity and the uh, and the legal uh, possibility to ensure that some of that Spanish gas, for instance, if Spain doesn't have any trouble, uh, can be sent to uh, uh, to to France and Germany or even Poland uh, if there are particular uh, problems there. Uh, and this is not the result of uh, you know the free market. This is the result of EU policy. Uh, and at the time, I mean, we build that uh, in a scenario where we, we we would see some kind of uh, uh, disruption of gas supplies coming from Russia, like we did in two thousand six, two thousand six, two thousand nine, and uh, two thousand and fourteen for 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 the last one. Uh, and this um, uh, regulation and this. Uh, um, physical gas infrastructure may come in handy uh, this winter uh, also. Uh, but this being said, um, you know, um, 10 years ago, I was still a student and we were talking about the Eurozone crisis and, and there was all the idea of, you know, some countries being free riders. Uh, and I think that's actually a valid point for storage capacity of gas. And, and when you look at it, I mean, the biggest free rider is Austria. Uh, if you look at the, the storage capacity, I mean, we have a paper at the Jacques Delon Institute that's going to be out uh, this week. Um, so in the first week of December. Um, and when we look at the storage capacity, uh, we see that it's super high in countries like uh, like Poland or like France that are at around 90% uh, of uh, full storage capacity. Uh, and that's because of regulation, because of national regulation to do that. Uh, Austria is barely at 50%. And here we're in the middle of November. Uh, and so here there is clearly um, uh, a policy failure uh, from the national level and possibly for, for, for the EU level. And this is something that we must fix. Since we have solidarity between the EU member states, we should also have some kind of shared responsibility. Uh, and we need uh, Austria, but also you know, uh, uh, Germany or the Netherlands uh, to, to have regulation that really ensure that when it comes to the winter, uh, th there is a gas being stored there. I mean, I see no reason why you have uh, uh, more storage facility capacity being filled uh, in France or in Poland uh, then in Austria and, and Germany, the re, I mean, the, the, here the reason really boils down to national regulation. We need to fix that uh, in order to make sure that um, if we have another gas crisis the next winter and the winter after that, uh, that at least in all countries you have a bare minimum to make sure that we don't have this such a vast disparity between uh, between Austria and Poland. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I wanted to to follow up on on, on what was being said before about the Texas case. It I, I think that's a great. Um, example just to show how much better off we are over here uh and and certainly there's a there's a there's a debt that's owed to the to the juncker commission because a lot of the of the programs that are basically going to keep us safe or, or more protected were rolled out during the last commission but you know for example one of the major issues um earlier this year when 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 texas suffered its its outages was that the the grid was physically not prepared. Uh, in, in addition to being isolated, it was just that uh, a lot of the lines and the and the and the, ga the gauges in the pole, in the coal plants and parts of nuclear facilities literally froze and and were unusable. And uh, the EU's clean energy package, which I 
believe dates to 2019, if I'm not mistaken, specifically includes the, the, the regulation on risk preparedness, which obliges European uh, entities to, to take steps to, to prepare for the scenario. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where not only is there the preparation, but then there is very much this uh, principle of solidarity within the, the, the energy union that, you know, it, it means that if, and, and, and there are examples of this, that, uh, you know, when the Irish grid was affected a few years ago, France sent people over to help. Uh, so it, it very much is a thing where, where we work together and that, that definitely gives us strength. The other thing that um, certainly helps is that just as part of the, of the overarching energy union strategy, uh, we just have so much more in terms of regulators that are planning ahead for all of this. Uh, so we, we really are just in a, in a pretty robust position uh, and, and certainly, you know, well before uh, the, the Austrian minister uh, gave her gave her warning, uh, the regulators were already looking at this and preparing for it. So we're, we're, we're you know, we're, we're not getting caught off guard here, uh, despite the, the, the degree of panic that there seems to be in, in some countries, you know, that the. the the institutional side um, that that oversees the, the the EU's energy union is, is is working very efficiently, and these are you know very competent. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's very important to underline. I mean, is if one of the greatest success of the European Union recently has been precisely that, um, and and so you see that also this kind of uh, uh, you know frontline cooperation uh, at the European level, you know, beyond the, the meetings in Brussels. Uh, so, for instance, um, a couple of years ago, I went to the southwest of France, uh, in Toulouse, um, and I saw that one of the guys that were working for the French transport system operator of electricity was a Spanish national uh, who is actually working, was hired originally as an engineer uh, by the, the Spanish uh, uh, company. Uh, and it was sent to uh, be, you know, uh, kind of, a, you know, seconded uh, to, to, to the French company. And there was a Frenchman who was sent to, to, to the Spanish one. And this kind also of, you know, very concrete uh, cooperation between, um, uh, between um, electricity trans- transport system operators also helped to uh, smooth cooperation and make sure that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, on the electricity sector, I mean, we are definitely stronger together. Uh, that, that's not just a motto for political campaign. That's physically uh, true that we are stronger together when we are uh, Europeans. Um, j- just a word also on, on, on Texas. I think it's it's quite fascinating and it tells us something about the, um, the European Union as a, uh, as a de facto federal body. Um, we have a lot in the EU debates, the comparison between the European Union and the US. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, obviously, the, the United States of America is more federally integrated than the EU. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true for you know the military, for foreign affairs, uh, for monetary policy, uh, you name it. Uh, but if there is one sector where the European Union is far more integrated federally than the US, it's definitely the energy sector and especially the electricity sector, uh, but also climate. And to me, that really speaks to the success. Uh, what is the the large success so far uh, of the European um, energy and climate policy that really restarted in the 90s, uh, but really took shape uh, in in uh, yeah at the beginning of this century uh, during the Barroso Commission, but also the the Juncker Commission that uh, Aitor spoke about, and, and you see that the, what happened in Texas is unbelievable <laughs> uh, first and foremost, and it's something that would never happen in Europe, but not because. I mean, not because we are smarter, just because we had we have people that in the past, concrete people in the Commission, the Parliament, the Council, that adopted the right policy choices uh, to make sure that this would not happen. Um, to to go back to um, the current crisis, over the past week, we've heard many calls from different 
figures for a rehaul of the EU's toolbox on energy. Um, so, for example, the French want the price of electricity to be partial, partially decoupled from the price of gas. This is what Ato explained on how we would pay for the cost of filet mignon, even for like basic ham. Um, so maybe kind of decouple the filet mignon from the ham um, and take into account cost of production, which would be quite convenient for a French who rely on nuclear power, for example. If the Poles want to use it as an opportunity to curtail the emissions trading system. Um, so there's a lot of ideas thrown around. None of these look like they are actually going to be received. Um, as there's an important block of northern countries that argue that the crisis we're currently facing is a short-term blip. Um, are we deadlocked? Um, is this situation not going to change? Are we kind of trying to muddle through the winter and, and hope for the best? Or are there some realistic short-term fixes and maybe political landing grounds we can see um, across the block um, at all? So the, the the wholesale electricity, uh, the, the marginal market uh, system is, is, is designed to provide utilities with opportunities to recover investments and operating expenses. And, and, and it's worked like this for years and years and years. And every analyst that I've spoken to, uh, you know, people far more intelligent than me who, who really, really, really understand uh, this stuff in depth always say, uh, look, alternatives have been tried. Uh, notably, California tried a, a, um, a different system. And uh, it ended up being more expensive. So uh, the the consensus is that this is uh, the best of all possible worlds uh, when it when it comes to uh, to um, electricity market structures. Now uh, that said, yeah, sure, everybody everybody's going to want their own particular thing, and 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 certainly the the, the Polish capacity to uh, <laughs> to rail against the ETS in any possible context is is always. Fascinating to me. I'm, I'm convinced you could invite the Polish to a debate on Erasmus, and they would also somehow mention the emissions trading system and why it's why it's so bad. Um, but realistically speaking, uh, no, they they don't have the votes. I mean, I, I don't even think it's a matter of deadlock. It's a matter of they don't they don't have the votes. Um, there is going to be a push, um, you know, uh, from 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 Paris and and from Madrid and from Athens. Uh, because I think politicians are under a, a lot of pressure. It, this, this situation is, is extremely grave, and it, and it highlights the fact that uh, there are going to be losers in the green transition. And that's a, that's a reality. And it's, and it's certainly something that we don't talk about enough. And the tendency, I think, has been to, um, to paint the green transition as, a, as a, uh, a transition that's all about opportunity. And, you know, we're going to phase out some fields and 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 uh, and move on to more prosperous ones i don't think that's a lie i don't think that's a lie at all but the reality is that as happens with any major shift there are going to be serious growing pains and, and these are part of them and uh, you know if 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 we want to be moralistic about it we could very much argue that the the pain that we're feeling now is the result of the lack of work before uh, had we started this transition way earlier, maybe the the impact would be less bad. Is as, as as was pointed out before, if we had a much larger um, uh, base of, of of renewable energy generation, then maybe we wouldn't be going through this now. But the reality is that we are going through it now. Um, I have seen no indication uh, that the that the institutions are at all interesting in in radically changing the, uh, the the market structure. It is interesting that that Acer, which is the the big um, energy regulators uh, agency, uh, so they came out with a with a document that was uh, commissioned by the commission at the petition of these companies uh, last month, and they came out with this document a few weeks ago, 
And what it did acknowledge is that in the long term, uh, they were not sure if the current market structure would be able to fully accommodate the investment signals needed for incentivizing generation uh, and demand responsive investment in, in renewables at scale. Uh, and they talked about looking at flexible solutions to energy storage. They talked about uh, maybe tweaking the language on interconnections. So I, I don't think that this is one of those things where nothing will change. But I do think that anybody hoping for a quick change is, is yeah, well, I mean, it, look, it's the European Union. Union. Like it's, it's delusional to expect a radical change to, to, the, to the market structure in a matter of months. And I think that the, what the northern countries have, have kind of argued is that you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is to say we're in a very tough situation, but we're in a tough situation that will probably go away in the spring. Certainly that's what all the, all the analysts are predicting, uh, that around March and April, power prices will go down. Will they ever go down to the prices that we saw during the pandemic? Probably not. But we had, you know, <laughs> half of Europe in lockdown. So, uh, so that's, that's not a thing. And, and, and we should, you know, we should be prepared for higher prices moving forward. The other thing that's worth uh, flagging in that, and that certainly the northern countries have, have insisted on, on highlighting every time this debate comes up is that Nobody complained about this market structure last year when energy prices were at record lows. So, uh, you know, you kind of have to take the good and the bad. I spoke with an analyst earlier this, um, this fall who did say that he had doubts, uh, you know, when this all ended, if we were to do the math, he, he continued to think that, that it might actually break even considering how low power prices were last year. So, um, so he said, you know, that's an obvious point in favor of, of the current system, but, um, no, I don't, I don't expect any, any short-term fixes. And I think the commission is pretty much united in that position across the, 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 the relevant DGs and they're, and they're firmly backed by most member countries. So okay. the solution is just kind of keeping <clears throat> it together and holding, holding firm, holding the line. Hmm. And so, um, Dumas, um feel free to bounce back on that, but maybe if there are any short-term fixes, what would a kind of long-term evolution look like? Sure. Um, I think the first one key point to stress is that, I mean, this crisis is not the result of the clean energy transition. Uh, it's the result of a lack of progress in the clean energy transition. Um, um, if we had already, I mean, if we had renovated 30 million more buildings than we did, uh, over the past decade, if we had deployed, you know, solar heating systems everywhere in Europe, like it was done to some extent in Austria and was largely in other countries like Israel, uh, but we'd be in a much better situation. But I just take the solar heating example because it's just such a low tech, no regret option. Uh, we have around uh, 15, so one five percent of the um, energy consumed in, uh, in buildings that is just for heating the water. Uh, a solar heating system is a technology that has, I mean, it was created in the early 20th century. It, has, it was largely deployed in the US during World War II uh, to use less oil to, to ensure that the, the GIs were more oil to fight, the, to fight World War II. So that's a, a super old technology that we could have developed far earlier. Uh, had we had done that, we would be consuming less electricity uh, and also less uh, natural gas because currently our water is largely heated uh, with uh, uh, natural gas first and, and, and electricity uh, uh, second. Um, this is not a short-term fix for everything, uh, but this you know, can, can be helpful because that's something that can be rolled out uh, for a few hundreds of thousands of uh, buildings in Europe quite, uh, uh, quite quick, quickly. 
Um, so, so yeah. Um, and let me go back on the on the political issue. Um, so we talked a lot about the losers, but there are a lot of winners of that situation. Uh, and and I find it surprising how much we talk about the losers and how little we talk about the winners. Uh, to its credit, I think it, I mean the only government at least that I know in Europe that really put that um, on the front burner was the Spanish government. Uh, with the idea to have a special tax on the windfall profits uh, of electricity generation companies, uh, and you know that that could be a way forward for for, for some countries uh, at least, because those companies when they are producing electricity, not only selling it, selling it but producing it, uh, they they make a lot of money, uh, especially if they are producing that with renewables, uh, but also um, uh, nuclear. Uh, so so yeah. Um, and the Nordic countries, I mean, the Nordic governments are absolutely right when they say that nobody complained about the market system last year or two years ago. Uh, and I mean, the, 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 big, the complainer in chief, so to say, today uh, is, is not actually France as a country. It's not even the French government. It's the French economic minister Bruno Le Maire, uh, whose position still to me is not clear whether it's the position of Bruno Le Maire as a minister or of the French government. At least it's, it's unclear to me uh, at, 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 this, at this stage. Um, and is clearly calling for uh, a massive change in the uh, EU electricity market design, uh, which I, I find, you know, I mean, I'm not surprised given the, the kind of political animal that Bruno Le Maire is. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, this is a market system that was created by French, Marcel Boiteux in the 1960s. That was a system that was deployed in France back when France was a, a state monopoly of electricity uh, back in the 80s. Uh, it's a system that was then later used at the EU level. Uh, it was validated with any, uh, with every uh, electricity market design uh, directive. And the last one that was uh, adopted was part of the clean energy package that was adopted in uh, June of 2019. And in June of 2019, the French economics minister was Bruno Le Maire. Uh, so, so that's something that he did agree uh, two years ago. So maybe he did change his mind, but in, I mean, he's totally allowed to change his mind. But then in this case, I mean, we should come up with concrete solution here. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, so I already, I already said the, the term in French, uh, so agitation politique. I don't know how, how you would translate that into English, but uh, yeah, I guess that, that that's... Yeah, 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 that, that's it. Um, and that boils down to the fact that the, the French government's approach to that crisis was to say, okay, we're going to slow down the price increase, but not stop it. Uh, and we're going to give an extra 100 euros to, uh, to a few million people and hope this will suffice uh, to make sure that this can uh, hold politically uh, six months before the election. Having someone to blame is always useful. Uh, and in any national context, blaming Brussels is always uh, easy because nobody is defending Brussels in the national media. Yeah, no, just to just to follow up on on what was said before uh, in terms of of, of um, being laggards in this process and now paying the consequences. I, I I remember one of the first stories that I wrote when I started as a journalist back in two thousand nine was I went to Denmark where at the time they were launching a major uh, renovation uh, initiative and they were doing works, you know, replacing windows and and working on heating systems. It's uh, it it has been fascinating, you know. Uh, what is it? What are, what are we now? Twelve years later, to be reporting on this as a European initiative and seeing it, um, you know, and, and and seeing now Spain is going to take out the the biggest uh, renovation wave of its of its history. Um, but it is a shame when when you look at it and you think, man, national policy uh, policies could have been different. Admittedly, we're not all Danes, and and we and we don't have the. Uh, the economic power that that uh, that Denmark has, but it is a shame that a, a lot of national strategies could have been rolled out earlier to uh, to favor these sectors and 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 ultimately to to put us in a much better situation going into uh, what's going to be a very complicated period. And I think we need to to name the elephant in the room here. I mean, you have genuine uh, vested interest, economic vested interest, and a very powerful gas lobby at the EU level, but also at the national level. 
Uh, and, and you see that when it comes to any regulation on energy efficiency or, or on solar heating systems, uh, uh, you see, uh, I mean, the, the, the national lobby that is watering down everything. Uh, and so this goes obviously for any kind of EU regulation in the EU directive, but also at the national level. Um, so there are, there are people that are, I mean, clearly uh, responsible for, uh, for, for that situation. Uh, and we should be mindful of that. I mean, it's, it's not to do a blame game, uh, but to understand what's the situation today. What are the political power balance that led us to those kind of choices uh, and to see to what extent we can change that, uh, that balance of power to, to lead to different uh, policy outcomes? And there, there, there is one big elephant in the room here, and, and that's uh, Germany's decision to, uh, to exit nuclear following the uh, 2011 Fukushima disaster. And um, that really increased uh, Germany's reliance on, on other sources, gas and, and coal. And uh, coal actually was on the... Uh, uh, coalition agreement that was just uh, revealed, the, the traffic light coalition agreement between the, the SPD, the, the Greens, um, and, and the FDP, uh, they, they target uh, an exit from coal by 2030. And so uh, uh, my twofold question is, first of all, how much are we reeling from Germany's decision to exit nuclear uh, in 2011? And how, uh, real, how realistic is th- their new uh, plan to leave coal by 2030, uh, starting with ITOR? So I, I think uh, I think this is an important decision. I think it's a it's a really it's a, it's a really symbolic one to have what is uh, you know by all accounts Europe's economic motor uh, making a real effort to go green. Um, admittedly, this is not going to be a process that leaves Germany being you know some sort of decarbonized wonder in twenty thirty. All, all the contrary, but I I, I think you know if the, if the German government says they're going to phase out coal by by twenty thirty, and and the language in the coalition agreement does leave some some leeway. They they, they say ideally by twenty thirty, but uh, but you know if they say they're going to do it, I I have full confidence that they can do it. Now I I think that there's a you know there's always there's always kind of a trick to this thing. So. Um, this uh, actually, I believe, tomorrow is the last day that that Portugal's uh, last remaining coal-fired power plant uh, has its operating license um, existent. It, it expires tomorrow, and so uh, you know Portugal can legitimately say that they have phased out coal. Now, is Portugal green? No, it's it imports power from Spain, and Spain still has a coal-fired power plant chugging away, and it still has nuclear. So. <laughs> Uh, I expect that Germany in 2030 will find itself in a situation like that. Uh, they, you know, they will no longer have the coal-fired power plants, but they will still be depending on natural gas. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Germany prepares itself for that situation to not find itself in the in the situation that Spain's in right now. You know, paying sky-high um, power prices if 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 there are hiccups on the on the global gas markets. And then I, I earnestly expect that even if um, even if the Germans want to want to uh, you know want nothing to do with nuclear on their territory, they are going to be delighted to receive uh, nuclear power from France. Uh, I, I think that's just a realistic thing, and I think uh, in 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 nine years' time we can expect much stronger um, energy links between all European countries. Certainly, that's the objective, and that's the and that's the and that's the order that they have. If that's the case, I expect that Germany will receive a, a substantial amount of, of uh, nuclear power uh, from, from France, uh, from Poland, if they end up building their, their, their plan. The Czechs are also looking into it. So I, I, I think uh, Germany will, will look for other ways to, to guarantee that the lights don't go up. Yeah, so um, 
there are a lot of myth and um, misconception about the, uh, the the German energy transition. Um, so the first thing is that the German uh, choice to phase out nuclear was not taken in 2011 with Fukushima. It was taken in 2002 with the atom consensus uh, that was decided by the uh, coalition of the, the Greens and the Social Democrats under the leadership of uh, uh, the Chancellor Gerhard Schröder. Um, so the choice that Germany made uh, at that time uh, was to go from uh, 30% of the electricity mix of Germany coming from nuclear to zero by the end of 2022. Um, this was confirmed by Angela Merkel during her first term. And then during the second term, she tried to delay that year. So she didn't want to create new power plants. But under the pressure of the FDP, um, she, she wanted some nuclear reactors to be used for um, a, a couple of years longer. Uh, so this started a debate in Germany. There was obviously a fierce opposition, including in the parliament. Uh, and in the end, because of Fukushima, she decided to bury, uh, to bury that proposal. Um, so, so Fukushima played a very minor role, actually, <laughs> in, the, in the German nuclear story, com contrary to what is often said. Uh, so there's this tendency uh, to portray the German choice to face nuclear as some kind of irrational uh, stuff taken under fear uh, against uh, after Fukushima. And that's not true. That's not what happened. It was a conscious, political, reflected choice of Germany uh, to face at nuclear uh, because of... Uh, well, a rational fear, uh, and sometimes irrational fear, uh, of risk uh, linked to radioactive waste and, and nuclear accidents, etc. Um, so that's the first thing to, to understand. The second thing is, um, that's a very slow phase out, going from 30% to 0% in 20 years. That's quite slow. Uh, and Germany is succeeding to do that. And they're succeeding to do that thanks to a massive boost of renewables, which would not have been at that scale, had it not been for that super popular choice to phase out nuclear. Uh, so this created uh, spaces for uh, you know, political maneuver uh, to build more uh, wind power, more solar panels, uh, investing more money um, into this. So when we look at, at the data, and so we, we published um, a paper on this uh, early September at the Jacques Delors Institute, where we look at the, uh, so we did an assessment of the 20 years of the German energy and the, the German energy transition. Uh, and what we see is that uh, if you compare 2000 with 2020, nuclear went from 13 to 11%. Renewables went from 7% to 45%. That's a massive boost in only 20 years. That's something I've never seen in the history of energy, with one exception, which is the, the French nuclear phase-in phase program of the 1980s. So that's a really, really massive change that happened in Germany with this massive scale-up of renewables that went from pretty much nothing to being almost half already uh, of the power mix uh, in Germany. Uh, and thanks to that massive increase in renewables, coal fell. Coal fell from uh, 50% in 2000 to 25% uh, in, uh, in 2020. And gas did increase a bit uh, on the same year from 9 to 16, which is a significant increase, but when you look at the big picture, I mean, we, we consume less gas today in Europe than we did in 2005, for instance. Uh, so did the German choice for nuclear phase out play a role? I guess technically you could make the case that yes, it does play a very small one. Uh, but but yeah. Um, and when it comes to the issue of um, uh, Germany importing uh, electricity <laughs> made from French nuclear power plants, I mean, th then it really, really depends on when we are. Uh, in a good time of the year. 
uh, if you look at the data uh, of the French electricity production, and you can have uh, so if you if you just Google uh, Eco Two Mix, uh, you will find a super useful um, website and app also that you can download on your phone where you can watch the French electricity generation real time. And I've been doing that quite a lot recently. Uh, and what you see is that our, our nuclear power is functioning at full capacity. Uh, we have forty uh, to forty-five gigawatts, but even even then. We are importing electricity from our neighbors all the time since the beginning of November, every single year, every single hour. Even yesterday, which was a Sunday, so that's a moment where we consume less electricity all over Europe, but also in France. Uh, yesterday evening, we were importing in France 10 gigawatts. That's massive. That, that's, that's six to seven modern nuclear power plants. And this is electricity that we import with the French. And we import it from uh, from Spain and Germany, and tends to be you know cold cold powered electricity. Uh, so the idea that the Germans would be happy to use nuclear electrons, uh, I mean yes, uh, but that happens rarely throughout the year. So that's mostly in the spring and uh, and in the, and in the summer. Uh, so and that's nice. But whenever we're in the winter, France is actually importing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of electricity because nuclear demand is not uh, nuclear supply is not fit uh, to deliver uh, that. Uh, you know, to, to respond to that big increase in electricity demand um, uh, in France. And here again, you know, the answer partially is European. Uh, it's far easier to manage a European grid than a national one. Uh, just to take France and Spain as an example here, the, the peak in um, uh, electricity demand throughout a year in France tends to happen in the winter. It tends to be in February because it's super cold uh, in France at that time. And because France has chosen to uh, push people, push the French to have electric heating at home, uh, and especially electric heating even for uh, badly insulating uh, uh, flats like like mine in Paris, uh, and 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 so uh, so yeah, uh, so that makes electricity demand very high in France in the in the winter. Um, in Spain, electricity demand is super high in the summer uh, for for cooling, and that's actually one of the reasons why this uh, European electricity price crisis happened first in Spain, is because Spain is one of those few countries in Europe uh, where the peak in electricity demand uh, tends to be in the summer. Uh, so once you fully connect the French and the Spanish system, you have something that is easier to manage because you have a diversity of needs. And therefore, you can have nuclear electricity in France uh, producing electrons for Spain um, in, the, in, in the summer uh, and hopefully wind uh, from Spain producing electrons also for the French in the winter. Um... Well, we talked about the first elephant in the room. Let's talk about the, the bear in the room, Russia. Um, a third of Europe's gaps, gas comes from Russia, and it seems like the Russians aren't exactly in a rush to help the EU out, as it has been um, significantly reducing its on-the-spot sales of gas, while pressing Europeans to sign some long-term contracts with uh, Russia's Gazprom at a discount. Now, it seems the Czech Prime Minister, Andrzej Babis, is interested to bite the bullet and, and make such a contract, but made a larger case saying that decoupling in, 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 on the energy landscape with Russia remains largely unrealistic and potentially a dangerous option. Um, what kind of leverage does Russia have over the EU on this issue? How, how, how far is our dependence on, on, on Russia? And what kind of geopolitical ends does Vladimir Putin seek out of the situation? Uh, Atal. So, I, I mean, the first one with that is, I, uh, so, so Babish is now out. Yep, so that's I'm, a very I'm, good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I have no idea what, uh, what the new prime minister uh, Fiala's position is on it. I'm, I'm, I don't know if he's as, as, uh, as ardent uh, a supporter of, of keeping up those, uh, those relations. Um, so 
I think overall, you know, we have to be realistic about the fact that Russia is not a member of the European Union. So, it, it, you know, they, they have no particular obligation to us. And, uh, and I would even go so far as to say that in the world of, 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 uh, of energy uh, commerce, uh, I'm, I'm not sure anybody operates with, uh, with, a, with a good heart and, uh, and with interest at, at keeping foreigners warm or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the objective of Moscow is to make money and, uh, and if they can get political leverage out of it as well, then, then so be it. Um, with this, I, I, I have to stick with the, uh, the commission's analysis of the situation. I mean, until now, what they've systematically said is that, uh, yeah, you know, Russia is making a lot of money out of this situation. Certainly Gazprom is, is enjoying a, a fantastic year, but they haven't committed any crime. They, you know, they're, 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 they're meeting their contract obligations. Uh, would we want more? Uh, sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it's, it, it really is one of those situations where I guess since historically uh, Moscow and, and, and certainly Putin have been known for mischief making, um, we, do, we do eye it with a lot more uh, skepticism and I would even say trepidation. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's only so much that can be done there. And I think realistically speaking, uh, you know, Putin's going to Putin and he's going to do whatever he wants to do and, and try to get whatever advantage he can get out of it. The best that you can do is is just be cognizant of that, um, and certainly you know look for look for and 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 make the most of the other suppliers that it has, and and I think they've generally been doing a good job of that. Um, certainly in the south, the the yeah obviously they're not affected by by Putin, but in the south, the, the on on behalf of the bloc, the 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 Spaniards uh, you know have been have been visiting Algiers uh, every two weeks to 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 ensure that Algerian gas is still coming into the bloc. Uh, I know that we've been um, just regularly reaching out to the Norwegians as well. so I, I you know the the, the the efforts are going on, the diplomatic efforts are going on. Um, but beyond that, uh, yeah, we have to hope for the West and, and uh, hope for the best and plan for the worst is, is, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, Thomas, um, Germany has decided to, um, stop the Nord Stream 2, uh, license, um, with Russia. Um, how far is Germany and more generally Europe's dependence on Russia, uh, energetic wise, um, currently, is this a bit of a myth or is there, um, a fair point now about we are um, ahead of a cold winter. Um, so, so we depend for from Russia for about a third of our energy. Uh, that's true for for gas. That's true for uh, oil uh, also. Uh, so it's significant, uh, but it's not like a hundred percent dependence. It's something we can definitely uh, definitely manage. Um, so ju just to 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 correct one element, so it's, it was not the choice of Germany uh, to to stop Nord Stream two. It was the choice of independent German judges uh, to say that Nord Stream two could happen under specific conditions. Uh, so so yeah, and it's a choice that the um, the um, outgoing German government really, really did not support. Uh, so so sometimes you know in debates we say like Germany and France, and I mean th those tend to be. I mean also we did that in our conversation. Uh, just to be clear, uh, but for instance, it's not. Um, you know, the Poles that are against ETS-1, uh, that's, you know, the current Polish government. That's a specific group of people. That's not an entire nation. Uh, so let's, let's never, never forget that. Um, when it comes to, to, to Russia and the other suppliers, um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, Putin is going to Putin, as, uh, as, as ATL said. Um, I think Putin is doing something, is shooting himself in the foot. Um, 
So what he's doing makes a lot of sense from, from a short-term perspective, uh, but from a medium-term to a long-term view, that's that outer stupidity uh, on his behalf. So the EU is about to present uh, a massive overhaul of um, energy performance of building directive and the gas package. So the two structuring elements, they're going to say, which role do we expect we Europeans for gas uh, in the transition? And at that moment, where we are deciding something that is crucial for future gas demand in Europe, and therefore future uh, Russian gas demand in Europe, uh, uh, Putin is playing the role of reminding us that fossil gases can be extremely expensive, it can really, really shake our economy to the bone, uh, and that it makes us extremely dependent on someone that we don't like, ge geopolitically speaking. Um, so I see the, the economic interest at play here in the short term, there might be some political interest vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine that, that I'm not privy to. Uh, but when it comes to the medium to long-term uh, interest of Russia, that's, that's really, really, really a bad idea, uh, what, what Putin is doing for, for his own uh, um, national interest. Uh, when it comes to the other suppliers, I mean, the, the situation is not great. Huh? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the Americans really, really developed uh, natural gas uh, extraction in the US. Uh, they promised us that whenever we had troubles, you know, they would send us what they call at the time freedom gas. Um, so, 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 yeah, and this freedom gas is going to, to this, uh, this uh, free, open democracy that China is uh, today. Uh, so that's really something where I think, I mean, just for, for the sake, I mean, as Europeans, we should defend our interest. Uh, we should not only, you know, uh, blame Russia. We should blame Russia when, when our interests, our interest, you know, uh, are there. But obviously, uh, Russia doesn't want to be victimized, and it would be make sense diplomatically, I think, for us Europeans to also blame the US uh, because they made promises and they are not holding up their the end of the bargain. Um, so, so yeah. And the third supplier, which is the biggest, uh, I mean, the most disappointing failure, uh, really, of the past decade, is Algeria. Um, uh, Algeria, if it continues like this, will stop being a gas exporter. Partially because they stop investing uh, as much as possible in gas uh, production, but first and foremost because they are burning, burning more and more and more gas in Algeria for the domestic market to generate electricity, and that's just outrageously stupid. First, from a climate perspective, because they're emitting CO two where they could, you know, just develop solar power in Algeria, which would make a lot of sense. Uh, from an energy perspective and an economic perspective. Uh, and it would be great uh, also for the export because they could continue to export uh, natural gas, which is you know, really the backbone of their, of their economy and of the current political regime in Algeria. Uh, and so here what Algeria is doing is just to, to, to promote the status quo uh, of, the, of the men and women, well, especially the men uh, that are ruling Algeria, both economically and politically. Uh, they are continuing the current policy of underinvestment in gas production, underinvestment in um, uh, renewable uh, electricity generation. Uh, today, it's around 95%, so almost 100% of the, of the electricity generation mix in Algeria that comes from fossil gas. In a country with that level of sun, that, that, that just make, make no bloody sense from a general interest perspective. And that's something where consistently we've largely failed as Europeans to kind of change this, uh, the, 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 uh, the situation there. So I don't really have a civil bullet to propose, but that's definitely one country with, with, with which we should definitely work because there is an interest for both climate and geopolitics uh, to ensure that Algeria does uh, a shift to, to renewables and therefore can export uh, more Algerian gas to, to Europeans. Well, thanks a lot, um, Thomas. Thanks a lot, Atol, for this great conversation. A lot of, uh, of insights and depth. 
Um, and um, thank you so much for being with us. I think we've covered a lot of ground from, from Germany to Russia to the United States. I always love America's capacity to label um, its energy. Freedom gas is extraordinary. Um, reminds me of freedom fries back in the days. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for both of you. And to our listeners, I say to see you next week. So, Jorge, um, ASOL from Politico EU and Thomas from l'Institut Jacques Delors are out. What did you make of this very interesting conversation on energy? I have to admit, I learned a lot of things today. Yeah, well, I think, um, so I think part of, the, part of the conversation we've just had kind of speaks to uh, the, the increasing importance of energy to European society. I think, I think you know, what we saw in the, with the Yellow Vest movement in France a couple of uh, summers ago was, um, well, I mean, it was through the year 2019 mostly and into uh, 2020, but what we saw there was, you know, this, this populist movement that essentially yelled at the at the ruling class that they wouldn't stand any more uh price energy price increases right any more sort of ecological taxes and i think this is an issue that we can no longer afford to ignore i mean that the price of energy uh in the context of um you know uh heading towards an energy transition is is paramount i mean the european commission wants the eu to be carbon neutral by 2050 and increasingly member states such as my own in spain where uh, a, left, a leftist coalition rules with a with a specific ministry dedicated to the environmental transition, but with with a in the context of a Europe that is increasingly bent on accelerating uh, the path to to uh, to climate neutrality, I think we can no longer afford to ignore the issues that come with it, namely the price of energy and you know the price of renewables. And and the other thing that that the other kind of comment that that was sparked by the conversation was the, the growing importance of Russia. I mean. In back in back in the days of stagflation in the 1970s, when um, energy prices increased, uh, Western countries would uh, routinely um, plead their case to OPEC, to the to the OPEC cartel of countries of largely Gulf uh, monarchies, and um, and now you're you're no longer seeing that as a result of the transition towards cleaner sources of energy, primarily gas and renewables. So now you see Russia playing a larger role, and I think. One of the more interesting developments that we just saw in the past week was Germany's uh, uh, about face on Nord Stream 2. And in fact, you and I have covered Nord Stream 2 on this show before. We hosted John Kampner, who, who kind of gave us um, the sort of the official line on Nord Stream 2, namely that Germany does not um, you know, appreciate uh, Russia's human rights abuses. But that when it comes to energy, we have, a mo- we have to reach a modest vivendi. So uh, and now they've kind of. They kind of turn back on that on that uh, policy. So, um, yeah. So, what, what did you think? Um, I thought I thought it was interesting. Yeah, that um, uh, the whole the whole um, conversation on the price of energy, environmental transition, is an important one. Um, I think they both laid out how because we were late in that transition, we are paying the costs. Because, for example, houses aren't isolated well enough. Um, so in yeah. many ways, we have lost a lot, not just kind of uh, on the environmental front, but even on the economic front, we've lost a lot of time. Um, but nonetheless, I think there's an interesting comment made by um, Kadri Simpson. She's the European Commissioner for Energy. She argued that trying to reduce the general cost of energy would also have a side effect of making renewables less attractive, less competitive. Yeah. And kind of reaches the kind of general point of, 
Yeah. And, and sorry, j- just to be clear, what she meant there in that comment is that when you raise the price yeah. of energy, you disincentivize investment into yeah. new capacity, right? Like e- eolic uh, windmills. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, but it, it kind of raises the question of, I think there was, um, I've been listening a bit to um, uh, Jean Covici. He's a kind of French guru on, on uh, of those green conversations. But he was saying that we have been paying very little um, European household, we've been paying very little of our income on energy, less than 5%, um, if you take all your spending combined. Um, and perhaps the question is, have we had it too too good for a long time? Have, is, if, we, if we are serious about this environmental transition, are we serious about putting uh, our money where our mouth is? A mouth where our money is, sorry, um, and vice versa. But there was an interesting poll, I think, I saw a few uh, weeks ago. It asked, it's not, it's not about, they didn't ask Europeans, they asked Americans, but would you be willing to pay, I think it was like something, something like $10 a month in order to, with a snap of your finger, get rid of the, um, um, uh, of climate change for 10 bucks a month. And guess what? I think 60% of Americans said no. Um, so there's a, and this is where we go back to visually John, the, um, off, 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 um, off, off screen, Thomas was telling us that um, what they realized in Institut Jacques Delors, it, it wasn't a kind of anti-climate um, protest. And I think they agree with that. It felt like they felt that they were burning the cost of this environmental transition and it wasn't fair. Um, but nonetheless, I think at some point we are going to have to pay for it. And, um, and the question is, how easy would it be for governments to shoulder that cost? And in the end, Macron... Uh, didn't want to short of that cost. He 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 stopped the increase um, uh, of taxation on fuel, which was what sparked the the, the crisis in the first place. Um, he he froze that that increase, that planned increase. He froze it for for a very long time because the political cost was becoming unbearable. Um, and uh, yeah, it's going to create very interesting conversations. I think we 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 we've had it too good for too long. Um, and then there's a the whole nuclear conversation and. Um, what I think is important about nuclear energy is, um, again, according to this Jean Covici um, guy who's very interesting, is essentially if you put the nuclear waste, I think France has produced since the 60s, it lands in a Olympic swimming pool, roughly. Um, so there's always going to be a downside to any source of energy, no matter what. Um, there's always going to be a downside. I think the question is you have to pick your poison. And... France is kind of selfishly pushing um, nuclear because it's producing a lot of it. But it, it's, it's a good solution for a lot of countries. Um, the nuclear waste issue is bad, and we're not really sure what to do with it. But so far, it is somewhat manageable. We dig it in very profoundly and put a lot of kind of layers on top. And um, the alternative is having very kind of um, polluting energies. And we can't only rely on renewables as well. I think that's something we didn't talk enough about today. But renewables, um, if there is no sun, if there's no wind... We don't have energy, and when there is too much wind and too much sun, we do not know how to stock that kind of energy very well. So we need we need something else. And for um, for many countries, the alternative energy is gas, um, but it could be nuclear. I think nuclear is, is is very flexible. You can you can turn it off and turn it down pretty quickly, or you can just change the the output pretty quickly. So um, with that, we conclude this week's episode on energy. I just want to uh, remind our audience to please like, share, and subscribe to our show. Also, please consider making a donation to the show through Patreon at 
patreon.com slash ondecencypod. And you can reach out with any questions or queries you may have uh, on Twitter or by email at ondecencypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much and see you next week.